I, I would say that uh, Joe's description of my impact is a function of accidents happen, but that's not consistent with his theological commitments. So I will choose not to say that. I've known Joe for a long time, uh, and as I mentioned in the first service, this is how long. Um, when I first met Joe, my hair was a different color, and Joe had hair. So it's been a very long time. Um, I'm very pleased to be here, and I'm grateful to be here on this day because of what it means for us as believers and as Protestant Christians. Uh, this Sunday is often referred to as Reformation Sunday. The reason this Sunday is celebrated in a lot of Protestant churches is because on October the 31st in 1517, a man named Martin Luther nailed a copy of 95 theses. Now, what's that? 95 points he wanted to debate. And he put these on the door of a church. Now, the story behind this is really important and it's dramatic. And even more importantly, it reminds us that God is sovereign and it reminds us of the power of the gospel. So let me back us up and put this in a little bit of context. Martin Luther was an obscure monk. Nobody knew who this guy was, who was living in an incredibly obscure town. In fact, if you looked up backwater in Germany, it would probably have Wittenberg. Wittenberg is the town. It's in the middle of nowhere. It consists of two streets. Each is about somewhere around a mile long. It's located about 60 miles south and east of Berlin. But the story really doesn't start in this kind of nowheresville town in northern Germany. It really starts in a place you're more familiar with, Rome. The pope in Rome was a guy named Leo X. And he was in the middle of a fairly extensive building program. He was building a nifty little chapel we sometimes call St. Peter's Basilica. Now, I hope you understand that I'm being facetious. St. Peter's Basilica is not little. If you ever get a chance to go to Rome and go into St. Peter's, you walk up the center aisle and you'll find brass plates in the floor. And you walk in, they'll say something like, St. Paul's Cathedral, London. And then you go a little bit further and it says, Duomo, Milan. And you're like, what is this? Well, those plates are in the floor to show you how much smaller those other churches are than this one. I.e., if you drop St. Paul's in St. Peter's, it would only come to here. Obviously, this is a big deal. And <clears throat> he had hired a very expensive painting company by the name of Michelangelo. Uh, and they were really, really expensive. And so... He's got to raise money. Now, there's a guy in Germany. His name is Albert. He lives in a town called Magdeburg. And he's a bishop. And for Albert, Magdeburg was too small. He needed to be a bishop of someplace else as well. 
So he decided, I'm going for Mainz. Mainz is the place where I want to be bishop, so I can be bishop of Magdeburg and bishop of Mainz. You might have heard of Mainz before the printing press comes out of Mainz. Okay, so he wants this. Goes to the Pope. Pope says, I got a deal here. If you will make a huge contribution to my building program, I think we can work something out with the bishop thing. Okay. Problem. Albert doesn't have the money. Pope, not a problem. I know people that'll lend it to you. Albert, how am I going to pay it back? Leo, I can handle that one too. How are we going to do that? We're going to do something called indulgences. What is an indulgence? An indulgence is a declaration that gets time off purgatory. So here's how it would work then. The idea was that if you confessed your sins, they would not send you to hell. But they still had to be paid for. Well, where were they paid for? Well, you paid for them in purgatory. Okay? So, I've got an idea. I will allow you to sell indulgences in your area, and you can use the money to pay back the people that you borrowed the money from to give me. And I've got a great salesman for you. His name is Johann Tetzel. And he's even got a jingle. You know, like those things you hear, the car commercial, and it's stuck in your head for forever. Um, I still remember someone, I was a 10-year-old kid, that just had that effect in your brain. So his little jingle was, as soon as the coin in the coffer doth ring, another soul from purgatory doth spring. So the deal is, my mom is probably in purgatory. I love my mom. I'll buy one of these, and that will get her out of purgatory. Or my uncle, or myself, whoever. So this is what is happening. Now, this is not happening in the town of Wittenberg, but it's happening in towns by Wittenberg. One of them's called Uteborg. And a bunch of people from Wittenberg are going to Uteborg because they went in on this. And Luther hears about this, and he says, this isn't right. This should not be happening. And so what he does is he wants to debate this. And he puts up 95 points that he wants to debate around this thing about indulgences. But what, I want to, but, but what I want you to see this morning is that is not really the heart of what we're about. And it's not the heart of this story. And it's not the heart of why we celebrate Reformation Sunday. It's not about indulgences. It is, but not as a core thing. It's not about debates. It's not about building a church. It's about two basic questions. Question number one is, how can I stand before a holy God? Question number two, what does God think about me? Is he my friend 
or is he my enemy? Those are the two questions that this obscure little monk in a town in the middle of nowhere is going to be driven by and it's going to turn the world upside down. So what I want to do is take some time and look at those questions and see how Luther came to the conclusions that he came to. So briefly, let me tell you about who this guy was. Who was Martin Luther? Well, he's born in the northeastern part of Germany in 1483. His father was part of an emerging middle class, and Luther was smart. Like, you know those people that are like scary smart? This is one of these guys. Just one illustration. By the time he was 25, pretty sure it's 25, so you're 25 or 30, either way it's scary. He has virtually the entire Bible memorized in three languages, German, Latin, and Greek. Now that's just like scary smart. So here's this guy. He's really smart. His dad is kind of making his way in the world. He sees this kid and he says, the Lord has given me a cash cow. I'm sending this kid to law school. He's going to study the law. He's going to become a lawyer. And we are going to become rich and famous. Great deal. Problem. Luther is a man who is really struggling. Now, I want to put his personal struggles in the context of what was going on in the 15th and 16th century. We don't understand how different life was for those people. It was very different. It was really hard. So let me just give you some statistics here to help you understand this. During this time, between 15 and 35% of infants died before their first birthday. Another 10 to 20% died before they reached the age of 10. And then there was this thing called the Black Plague. So we, you know, are concerned about COVID. Well, let me tell you about the Black Plague. When it went through Germany, about 40% of the population just disappeared. When it went through Provence in France, 50%, 5-0. When it went through Tuscany in Italy, 70%, 7-0% of the people died. Now, death for us is surprising and scary. Death for them was all over the place. Imagine if every morning you got up and there were more bodies laying on the street in front of your houses, waiting, hoping that somebody will have the courage to pick them up and carry them away. That's what's going on. So because of that, these people are going to think about life a way of a lot differently than we do. Specifically, they're going to believe more in the life to come than this life. I'm going to say that again. 
They're going to believe more in the life to come than this life. The one thing Manevilist knew is, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It's all around me. I'm going to die. And I better be prepared to die. Second, they believe God was angry. That's understandable, isn't it? That many people die, God's mad. Third, they believed that Jesus was the one who would judge their souls. So when they died, they would stand before Jesus, and Jesus would look at them and decide whether or not they were good enough to get into heaven. So, here is the young Luther. This is his world. And here are his questions. How can I stand before God? What does God think about me? Now, this is what Luther was taught. He was taught that you must earn your salvation. He was taught that grace is necessary and it's to be received through the sacraments. He was taught that grace you get from the sacraments will make you a good person so you can do good works and earn God's favor. He was taught that deep inside his heart, he wanted to love God. That deep inside his heart, he wanted to love his neighbor. And so he was taught, look within inside yourself and do what lies within you. Here's his question. Can I, by grace and my own effort, become so righteous that Jesus will judge me good enough to be accepted by the Father? He's tormented by this. Comes to a head, 1505. He's in law school, he's walking home, thunderstorm. Thunderstorms are scary anyway. This one was really scary. And remember, he's struggling with how can I stand before God? Lightning hits very close to him. Boom, knocks him down. So he calls out to the patron saint of his family, St. Anne's. St. Anne, help me, he cries, and I will become a monk. Well, he survives. Well, I made the deal. I better keep it. So he goes and becomes a monk. Dad is not happy. I spent all this money to give you a good education, and now you're a monk. And to make it worse, he became an Augustinian monk. What's so bad about that? They were what was called a begging order. How did they get any money? They walked around begging all the time. Not exactly a high social status position. People did not want to see these people because all they were doing was walking around groveling for money all the time. He was supposed to be the cash cow. Now he's a disgrace. Why did you do this? I did this because I need to get answers to this question. How can I stand before God? What does God think of me? So Luther becomes a monk. And boy, did he become a monk. He went at it. And it didn't work. Every time he did something good, 
When he got done, he would always think, but I could have done a little more. Every time, he was supposed to feel sorry about not doing a little more. He increasingly found himself saying, you know what, I'm not sorry, this game is rigged. And then he went one step further. I don't love God, I hate God. God has set up this game that I cannot win and he's going to damn me to hell and it doesn't matter how hard I try. How can I love this God? Well, that's blasphemy. Okay, I better work at it more. The guy went to confession eight hours at a time. How would you like to have been the priest listening to this? One time the priest got so upset he said, Luther, why don't you go commit a real sin? Go kill your dad or something. Why is he in there for eight hours? He's in there because he's been reading the Bible and this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You mean 99.999% doesn't make it? Yep. Doesn't make it. It's all, everything. I can't do that. I can't do that. If we all took that seriously, and you had a confessional booth in this church, you would destroy Joe, because he would, have to, he would live in it. What do you have to, anything less than 100% love of God and neighbor, you have to confess. Oh, I drove by this guy and his car was nicer than mine. Sin. Sometimes I drive the Eisenhower Expressway. Monument to human ignorance. Bad deal. Total depravity in action. I wish I could say I was always godly and interacting with my fellow drivers. I'm not. According to Jesus, that's a damnable offense. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. How am I going to stop this? Well, the church says, well, here's what you do. You look inside yourself, you find this desire to love God, and you act on it. That doesn't work either. Why not? Because Luther understands that at the end of the day, the only reason he cares about God is because he wants something from God. He's playing El Bribo with the Lord. I kind of have a running joke with my seniors at Moody every spring. I always kind of say, hey, you guys are doing a lot more devotions than you normally do, aren't you? Uh, yes. And I know why. Why? You need a job. You need to decide whether to marry this person. You need to decide which seminary to go. And so what you're doing is playing this game. Well, if I read my Bible more, God will owe me. That's not loving God. That's loving God for what's in it for you. Luther calls this the curve of the self into the self. 
and he can't stop it. He can't stop it. He starves himself. He beats himself. He prays for hours. He works harder and harder and harder and harder. And he can't stop it. And he can't stand before a holy God. He can't. And he believes God doesn't love him. He believes God is a cruel taskmaster. Who this is all just a cruel joke. What does he do? Well, he's in an Augustinian order of monks. So they study Augustine. Augustine was a theologian in the fourth century. And as he reads through Augustine, he begins to understand something. Here's what he understands. Sin is not what I do. It's who I am. See, the problem is not that I'm jealous of that car. The problem is I'm a jealous person in my soul. And if I can fix my jealousy about the car, guess what'll happen? It'll pop up somewhere else. It's not the external, it's a heart problem. So G, or Luther says, and he's right, Christianity is an inside-out religion. Jesus said that. It's your heart, it's your heart, it's your heart. So Luther begins to understand his problem is not what he does. His problem is who he is. It's this curve of the self into the self. Second, he starts to study the Bible. Now, I never like talking about this because every time I do this, I'm <laughs> convicted about my own approach to Bible study relative to Luther's. Let me explain. He uses a three-part Bible study method, okay? First two are easy, we know this. Number one, I'm gonna pray. Of course, Lord, I'm gonna study your word now, okay? I've got my copy of uh, the Catechism, or I'm gonna read through the book of Romans, or pick it. Okay, Lord help me, okay. Then you study, you think about it, what's it saying here, how does this apply to me? Great, here's the third part. Luther talks about what he calls anfectum, and you're like, what? That sounds like something I was vaccinated for when I was a kid. No, anfectum is a German word, and there's no really English equivalent, but it means something like this. Wrestle, struggle, grab. You know who his favorite Old Testament character was? Jacob. Because he didn't let go until he got the blessing. Every time you open the Bible, you need to hang on until you get your hip knocked out of joint. Fight with this. Fight with God. I will not go until this is burned into my soul. This is how Luther studies the Bible. He said something that I really hate because it's very convicting. So I have no time for people who read the Bible and run. Guilty. Just do it and run away. So he's studying two books. Psalms and Romans. He gets to Romans chapter 31 and verse 1. 
This is what he reads. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Now, this verse drives him nuts. Why? What does Luther think God's righteousness does? For Luther, God's righteousness is the standard, and because God is righteous, if you do not meet his standard, it's on the basis of his righteousness that you are condemned. So here's David. Because I'm righteous, give me righteousness. What? He knows who David is. You mean the guy that was the adulterer and committed murder? Yeah, that guy. He's standing before God and saying, I'm righteous, you're righteous, give me it. What's wrong with him? He should be saying, God, deliver me in your mercy. Be kind to me, be gracious to me. Never ask God for what you have earned. Because if the standard is righteousness, the only thing you've earned is damnation. Why is David doing this? But then he thinks about what he's been studying in Romans as well. Hmm. So he looks again at Romans chapter 1. And here are verses 16 and 17 from Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness, excuse me, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, the key to this whole thing, the key to his understanding this is, he started to read the Bible in the original languages. Everybody up till then had been using a Latin translation of the Bible. And here's how the Latin version translated that text. It meant to make just. So the teachers of the church understood the doctrine of salvation as being what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church, makes unrighteous people righteous so they can do good works and merit salvation. Luther's now reading it in Greek. What? The Greek word doesn't mean to make righteous. What does it mean? To regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. Here is what Luther came to understand. And this is why Reformation Sunday matters. By faith, he can be united to Christ. 
And when we are united to Christ, the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. Now, us fancy theological types call this imputed righteousness. But I like what Luther called it because I think it catches it better. He called it alien righteousness. Righteousness that is in me, but not mine. That is what he came to understand. And here is where he makes one other connection. He says, you know, we don't understand faith. We think that faith is something we can do. No. Faith is a gift from God. Why? What do you mean? Let me remind us of what we believe. This is the story that you and I believe. We believe that a semi-literate Jewish peasant girl, 12, 13, 14 years old, was impregnated by God. And this semi-literate Jewish peasant girl, 12, 13, 14 years old, went to a town in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem, town of bread. God was born in a cow stall. Then what did God do? Well, apparently he worked with his dad making chairs for 30 years. Then what happened? He picked 12 guys. And he wasn't able to keep any of them faithful. They all bailed. They all bailed. One of them sold them out. And he ended up being executed on a trash heap outside the city in a manner that was so disgusting. Sophisticated Gentiles wouldn't even say the word crucifixion. By the way, that's where we get our English word excruciating out of the cross. Now here's what's interesting. You and I have wagered our entire life on that story being true. Now, what does it take for a person to do that? An act of God. It takes an act of God. We believe it. We really believe it. You know, Paul said that the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the Gentile or to the Jews. What is it to the Gentiles? Foolishness. But we believe this. And Luther would say, that is an act of God. That is an act of God. And that's what faith is. Faith is something that comes from God. It is not a human work. Now, because of this, Luther begins to think differently about his Christian life. And so he says, you know, when I think about it, there's really only two kinds of people in the world. Sinners and sinners. Some of them are justified by faith and some of them aren't. Wonder what that means. Wait a minute, I better go back and reread that text in Romans chapter 1, 17, 
where Paul quotes from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And he says, the just shall live by faith. Faith is not something you did. Faith is a way of life. The gospel saves us every instant. We are called to believe it, to live it. That is what faith is. I never, ever, ever merit God's favor. God never looks at me and says, I got a winner in Quiggle. My wife can tell you that. The only reason I can stand before a holy God is because I believe Jesus. That's the gospel. And by the way, if you're a person who's been trying to meet the impossible standard of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you hear that Jesus offers his righteousness, do you think that's good news? Man, that's good news. That's unbelievable good news. Luther says, when I understood this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, literally, the gates of paradise opened and I walked in. Luther said, I'm a sinner and I've been trying to fix that. No, no, I'm a sinner and that's God's problem. He has to do something about it because I can't. And he has in his son. That's good news. The second thing is the sinner part. Remember, two kinds of people. Sinners and sinners. Some are justified by faith, i.e. faith. Some are not. Okay, if you are a sinner who's been justified by faith, I get the faith part. But there's a second side to that coin. It's repentance. How does that work? Well, I mentioned these 95 theses. Hmm, I wonder what they say. Well, here's what the first one says. Luther says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the whole life of believers should be repentance. I never reach the point where I do not need to repent because I am never righteous. But Jesus is. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to believe and it means to confess. It means to believe and it means to confess. It means to believe and it means to confess. And this is how we live. So Luther has answered the question, how do I stand before a righteous God? The answer is by faith alone. But what about this other question? What does God think about me? 
Does he love me or hate me? And the answer, again, is found in faith alone. But it's different, Luther says. Luther says faith transforms God from enemy to friend. I like that. Before faith, God was Luther's enemy. He was against him. His righteousness stood condemning Luther. But by faith, now he sees that God is for him. And God loves him. And God gave himself for him. Luther focuses on Christ on the cross. Not because he believes the resurrection is not important. Not because he thinks Christ's work is unfinished. Not because he believes Christ is being re-sacrificed. But because Christ on the cross shows him, Christ loves him. And he fully understands that Christ gave his life for him. And by the way, why is Christ on the cross? He's there because he's doing the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to the will of the Father. Father loves him too. What does God think about me? He loves me. How do I know? Because Jesus died on the cross, and he did it according to the Father's will. There's one other thing here that Luther says I think is very important for us to understand. The cross, Jesus on the cross, shows us that Jesus gets it. He knows about our pain. He knows about our grief. He knows about his shame, our shame. Let me just remind us. His friends abandoned him. One cursed him. A so-called disciple sold him out. The entire city turned on him. They mocked him. They laughed at him. He was beaten. He was spit on. And he was totally innocent. To make matters worse, and I want to say this carefully and respectfully, most scholars believe that Jesus was crucified the way Romans crucified everybody. That is totally naked. Imagine the shame. Unbelievable. Jesus knows. He's not separated from us. He gets it. So, this Sunday, while the, the act of sticking 95 things on a door in a church in a little town called Wittenberg matters, Really, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot more going on here. This morning, here's the question we have to ask. How can we stand before a holy God? This morning, do you think you're good enough? Do I think I'm good enough? Do we think God grades on the curve? 
so you're better than everybody else and that's okay? Do I really love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbor as, as myself? If the thought of standing before God this morning terrifies you, I have good news. Jesus offers you himself, the just for the unjust. By faith, you can receive his righteousness and stand confidently before God. Stop trying to save yourself. Ask God to give you faith, to trust in Jesus alone so that you can have peace with God. If you're a child of God by faith, is faith a lifestyle for you? Is it a lifestyle for me? Am I constantly looking to Christ alone or have I started to think God might owe me something because I'm a good guy? The message to us is to remember the gospel. The message to us this morning is to confess and believe. Confess and believe. None of us ever reaches the point where we're too mature to center on the gospel. And finally, some of you came here this morning beat up, bruised, you feel alone. You wonder, does God even understand what I'm going through? Does he care? Jesus died alone in the dark, thirsty, screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word, Jesus gets it. He understands your pain this morning. He gets it. He gets it. And because of that, you can go to him. He will not cast you out. He is for you. He knows what it's like. He gave himself for you. Grab him. Run to him. Hold him. The next time you think God doesn't love you, read the account of the crucifixion and remember why he's there. He's there because he loves you. And he knows what's happening in your life right now. And he promises someday it'll all be right. It didn't get fixed for Jesus that day. But he persevered, endured and cross, despising the shame. And he calls us to do the same. He's with you. Trust him. There'll be a lot of people wearing costumes and eating candy today. That's okay. But this is really what today's about. It's about the gospel. And it's about Jesus. And it's about the God who became one of us so that we can be reconciled to him and live a life of freedom without fear of condemnation. I give you Paul. There is therefore now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I'm thankful for this goofy guy, a monk in Germany. And I'm grateful for the silly little town named Wittenberg. And I'm grateful that you were kind to us. Lord, I, I, I don't even begin to understand what you've done. But I pray, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I pray for us, Lord. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Do this. Answer this prayer. Not because we've earned or deserved it, but simply because we belong to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.